Welcome to Insight in Psych podcast. Today we're going to be discussing a little bit more about addiction. Although the residents and psychiatrists and other health care providers on this podcast are affiliated with various institutions, the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those institutions. The podcast is for learning purposes only and is not to be taken for medical nor psychiatric advice your personal doctor is the best person to discuss those issues with hello again my name is dr lauren williams i am a psychiatry resident at university hospitals with Case Western Medical School in Cleveland, Ohio. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Nancy Duff Bain, who is a psychologist. What I do currently, Mm -hmm. in the office, we have a range of treatments for addictions, starting with assessment, individual treatment, and all the way through. And Intensive outpatient, which is a group that meets for three hours, three days a week, but also has other services involved with that. So I also have a regular psychological general practice within that as well. So I have a wide range of things that I do. My training was at University of Cincinnati decades ago (laughs) and involved child training as well which is where my husband and I met. Kind of along the lines of that, what kind of drew you into pursuing psychology per se? Really, I have to trace it back to when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. That when I was 15, a sophomore in high school, I went away to Europe to live with a family in Spain for six months. 1967, this was. Did you speak Spanish? I came to speak Spanish. No, I was pretty good with high school Spanish, but of course I became fluent and started dreaming in Spanish while I was over there, which I am no longer able to do. While there, the record Sgt. Peppers came out. So when I left, pot was around, but everybody that I knew talked about how they would never, ever smoke it if it was at a party. They would like leave that party. Nobody would ever smoke it. Then I'm in Europe, I'm in Spain and traveling around Europe some, and I see this Sergeant Peppers, and what on earth has happened to the Beatles? This was, you know, I want to hold your hand, and suddenly they're in these psychedelic uniforms, and it was intriguing. And by the time I got back, the people, my, my siblings in the car, uh, driving back from the airport, were singing White Rabbit hmm. to me with very clear signs to me that this meant more than what the words implied. And they were singing it really loud, knowing that my parents wouldn't understand. But I was totally as clueless as my parents. Of what White Rabbit Of what they were talking about. Tell us about what White Rabbit was. White Rabbit was a very popular song by Jefferson Airplane Mm -hmm. that came out in 1967 and involved just talking about drugs. It was all about the Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass, and it was a metaphor for how you felt when you were taking drugs. 
especially marijuana, but probably referring to psychedelics as well. What you also said that's interesting to me is when you were living in Spain and it was kind of in the 60s and there was a thought around marijuana that nobody would would touch it. Why was it demonized at that time? What, What did people know about it? Well, it was a drug, you know. We didn't know much about it. We didn't even have the that famous movie, Reefer Madness, that was popular. That movie was made in the 30s, but it was illegal. It was still illegal. And people were getting high on it more and more. It was sort of a California thing. And I grew up in New York, so it hadn't yeah. really kind of <laughs> come to the East and down to my age level, which was still 15 right. so- at the time. So it was, I, I was sort of on the threshold of the world uh, that was going to become overrun with marijuana. And basically, I'm skipping to when I got back now, and suddenly everybody was smoking pot, and they were talking about how their limit would be hash. They wouldn't have, that's still marijuana, but it's much stronger hashish, which is a much stronger um, type to smoke. But as time went on, people's limits went farther and farther out so that they would finally talk about how they would never, ever smoke opium, you know, even if it was in the next store. Now, maybe if it was in the next room, they might be tempted to smoke. So the boundaries just kept getting closer and closer to what people were willing to do. And this morphed over a period of years. But what was shocking to me at age 16, by the time I came back, whereas everybody was talking about how they would never do marijuana when I left, by the time I came back, nobody wasn't doing marijuana. And I had no idea. I just remember sitting in rooms with friends and everybody giggling and nobody telling me what was going on. And somebody <laughs> said, oh, oh, yeah, we've been breathing in balloons it's all, helium. it's all the helium that has gone to our heads and is making us giggle. I thought, well, helium never did that to me before. I was clueless. So it really shook me up. I was gone for those six months when the world changed. What else was going on around that time, like socially? Like when was Woodstock? Was that 1969? 69. So it was beginning to develop. And there was acid. There was LSD happening in mescaline and all of that, that really gradually came to be something that people closer to me would use by 1969. But in 1967, it was really pot and hashish, and also heroin started coming into it within that two-year period. And that's also really interesting that you said that. I was listening, actually, another podcast where they were interviewing uh, this physician who trained at Harvard whose name is Andrew Well. And he was actually one of the first to make a study on marijuana that he did during his last year of medical school at Harvard. He got the IRB proposal because what he really wanted to understand is the effects of marijuana. So while he was trying to conduct the study, the police department kept reaching out to him and saying, we want to come and observe the people that are in your study getting high because we don't know what it looks like when they get high. Mm. And for a long time, they, they didn't want to let them come observe them because it would be very unsettling for the participants to have the police there as they're getting high. Mm. But when they actually 
did get high, the police were like, when is it going to begin? When is it going to start? Mm. And Dr. Ball was like, what do you mean start? When are they going to start acting crazy? It's like, well, they're already high right now. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of just a total disbelief and shock that the police kind of displayed because they had this idea that someone on high on marijuana would be totally not functional. They didn't just have a lot of information about drugs and especially marijuana at that time. Yeah, they probably thought of it as being drunk. If you're intoxicated, you're intoxicated and you slur your words. And it's, it's easier to behave straight and normal when you're high on THC than it is when you're high on alcohol. Right. So kind of off the lines of that, kind of going back to the original question, you came back from Spain. The world is is different in terms of how America is looking, viewing, and utilizing drugs. And you became interested in addiction at that moment? or Well, I was trying to figure out what had happened mm-hmm. to all these people. And there was not much written on marijuana at the time. I couldn't really find anything on that. I got interested in heroin and studying what happened to people when they got high on heroin and why they would continue using it. So I read a lot about that. And I didn't know... a. A lot of people, you know, I, I had some friends that were Vietnam vets that came back addicted to heroin. Mm. So I could talk with them. I could, you know, know what it was like for them to go through withdrawal and keep my on needing to get a fix. But mostly I was interested in the books that I was reading about what it was like being a junkie in New York. Mm. But when I went into training then, years later, I really wanted to avoid the whole subject. It was, it was kind of a traumatic thing for me. Why was it traumatic? Well, the world changed between in those six months when I was 15 to 16. And it was very confusing to me. People that I was closest to had altered in this strange way. And I wanted to avoid thinking about that. So naturally, if you're in this field, you're going to come in contact with this issue over and over again. And Partly, I think a lot because I was involved and then married to my husband, who's, who was always very involved in um, treating addictions, and wasn't as personally traumatized by it. I think he really encouraged me, not even directly, but indirectly, to face these challenges with people. And so instead of looking at it as, oh, this is this hopeless area that I'm really going to avoid thinking about, it became a very gratifying challenge Mm. to uh, address. And I do find I'm very involved in my professional association of psychologists in Cleveland. And still, most psychologists are very uncomfortable asking about drug and alcohol use. Use. Mm -hmm because they don't want to uncover that there's abuse, because they don't know how to handle it if it does come up. And much of that, I think, is because people get so defensive if you ask about it, because they want to protect their use. They don't want a professional coming there. If they have a problem that is just budding that they don't want to admit to, they have an enormous amount of shame and guilt that they assume you're going to have the judgment to go with that shame and guilt. 
So it is a very delicate topic to address, which is why I encourage residents and medical students to go online to the SAMHSA website and get the training, the SBIRT training, which actually you can get for free on the Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services website now. I think SAMHSA still charges for it. But SBIRT has to do with the how to ask the addiction and chemical use questions in a respectful, non-judgmental way, and then how to handle it. And it should take five minutes. Even if somebody is an extensive user, it takes five minutes to say, okay, here's how much is safe. You're within those limits, straddling those limits, above those limits. See if you can bring it down to these, and let's talk about it next month. Right. So off the lines of that, I thought you brought up a really interesting point about how a lot of psychologists don't want to ask these questions or kind of shy away from it because the question still resides, what do they do with that information? You know, psychologists, a lot of people have the understanding that psychologists have a PhD and a lot of their focus is on counseling. So if you don't have a special interest in addiction, um, but you still are a health provider as a psychologist, what would they do with that information now that they've asked, they've gone through the website, they know those questions? What is the next step for a psychologist to kind of help someone dealing with addiction? Well, it's really uh, the same advice that is given to primary care physicians about this. We're general practitioners. Most psychologists are general practitioners. So we see the entire waterfront of problems. We come across this all the time. And the very first piece of advice is ask about it. Hmm. In our office, for instance, and I always recommend this to people I supervise and people that I teach in the psychology community, we have uh, four instruments that we give to everybody upon intake. One is uh, they're all self-report instruments that they fill out in the waiting room. One is about anxiety. One is about depression. One is about attention deficit disorder. Mm. And the third is health questionnaire. So it asks about exercise and diet. It asks about tobacco. It asks about alcohol. And it asks a number of questions about all these things. So having the question buried in a health questionnaire doesn't make makes people less defensive Mm -hmm. and then they're prepared for when you ask the question well how much do you drink Mm -hmm. and how often and there are very clear limits that the national institute on alcohol abuse and addictions provides for alcohol use that's no more than three on any occasion or more than seven in a week for, for women, woman. and, how and no for more men? than four on an occasion, or 14 in a week for a man. Going above those limits at any time puts you in a category of higher risk for developing problems with that. It doesn't mean that you're labeled as an alcoholic, yeah. but it, it helps people see at what point the danger zone is for them. And there are people who use that much who don't develop bad consequences. So actually there are, if if you're brave enough to ask the question and open the conversation, 
you find that people who are straddling those limits will come back a month later and say, you know, I'm not drinking that much. I'm only drinking once a week and I keep it under three and, you know, I'm good. Right. So then it's not hard for most people to pull it back. Hmm. So then that's kind of the next question. I'm in my, say I'm in my psychologist's office. I screen positive for possible addiction uh, pathology. And I speak with my psychologist. I admit it. What happens next? Hopefully it doesn't feel like a confession. Hopefully it just feels like sharing of health information. Mm Mm-hmm. And then on that neutral ground, I, as a psychologist, can give the information about what the safe limits are that are, I'm not targeting this information at you. This is from epidemiological studies about the entire nation. And I'm just telling you this information so that you can use it. And let's talk about it again the next time I see you. I find that most people that I tell those limits to and they're getting up to them in their normal lives. I find that most people don't have a problem talking about it. They bring it up the next time. And by the way, I'm not drinking that much anymore. And they don't have a problem with it. Now, if people have a real problem with it, they're probably way higher risk for developing problems with addiction. So when the patient is like, okay, I need treatment now. I want to get sober. What 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 do you do with them next? Great question. The next is, this is a very important issue, and we're here talking about other issues, so that issue deserves great attention all on its own. So I want you to go to a specialist in that area to have a full assessment, and I receive assessments I I can do that if it's right off the bat, but if somebody has come to me to my general practice, I don't then schedule the assessment with myself. Hmm. I refer it to another provider. Hmm. So now it's clear that the providers need to talk with one another, need to collaborate because it is a single individual. But I need to make it clear that the assessment is a whole hour, usually more than an hour on its own. And I want to make it clear that it deserves right. its own attention. And, so, and then that's a, a good point that you made that treating addiction in itself is a multifaceted plan that includes multiple providers and a lot of monitoring and is something that is hard for any one provider to do by themselves. Yes, very true. I I do want to say that historically in the field, we used to really separate the addiction or alcohol treatment from the psych treatment. And more and more, it's become obvious that you cannot separate them. You have to treat them both together. So if in the course of my general practice, somebody says, somebody talking about their use, it becomes clear that really their addiction is the bulk of their problem. I'm going to want to refer them to a treatment program that has a wider range of services available. So often it's going to involve group treatment. I don't want to give that uh, diagnosis or treatment recommendation the first time that I talk to somebody about this issue. 
the recommendations for treatment need to come after a very thorough investigation that involves history of drug use, history of mental illness, family history of both of those things, history of trauma. Many things that I also deal with in the mental health treatment, but it is a very specific and targeted assessment that is done for drugs and alcohol. Kind of looking forward, what do you think are the next steps for the field of psychology to really support and further aid the treatment of those that have addictions here in America? Well, two ways. The ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, has a great push to get primary care physicians to ask about alcohol and addictions. That's wonderful. The psychology community needs to do the same thing. We're all general practitioners. We all need to be asking these questions Mm -hmm. in order to flesh out who is having these problems. Secondly, in treatment programs like the one I have in my office, there are far too few psychologists involved. So our perspective is often missing, or if it's there, it is implemented by people who are not specifically trained as thoroughly as a psychologist is. Mm -hmm. So I think it needs to go both ways. General psychologists need to be better trained. Treatment programs need to include more psychology. If there is someone in our audience listening who is dealing with addiction and you wanted to leave some parting words with them, what would you think would be important for them to hear? There are a lot of resources in the state and in the community to get referrals. And when you do get a general referral for psychology, usually you can ask for what specialties these people deal with. And so you can ask for addiction treatment. Now, SAMHSA has a national clearinghouse of treatment providers that and you can get somebody who will do an individual assessment, totally confidential with you, and you can go all the way to inpatient detox treatment or intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, the whole continuum of care you can find on the SAMHSA. And these are, uh, they only list programs that are certified within their state. So these mm-hmm. have already been through extensive evaluation. So you're, you're safe asking that. Also, calling the local AA office and Al-Anon office, extremely important. This is a family disease, and there are more people who are family members of addicts than there are addicts, mm-hmm. obviously. And addicts themselves are involved with other addicts, so they can use Al-Anon. And a lot of people actually who are in both programs call Al-Anon Graduate School for AA. It's in, in AA, you're dealing with yourself and bringing yourself together. In Al-Anon, you're really dealing with managing relationships. So both of those resources, the local AA and uh, Al-Anon. To summarize, not only is there help, but there's hope as well a lot of help and hope. Now, it's true that many people, most people who have an addiction don't seek treatment. The ones that do seek treatment are in the 10% and they get better, even if it takes them 
between 10 and 20 times to finally get it. They're the ones who are working on it and are going to get it. Mm -hmm. So they shouldn't be discouraged if they do trip and lapse and need to pick themselves back up again. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you all for listening to Insight, Insight Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at insightinsight at gmail.com. Please consider reviewing us on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. Special thank you to Dr. Nancy Duff Bain for speaking with us today and helping us all gain more insight in addiction. Mm-hmm.